series for a few weeks going through 1 Peter, largely because we've got a serious problem. Uh, This problem is something that's been going on in our world for a long time, and the biggest part of this problem is that it doesn't feel like a problem. It feels like something noble. It feels like something we want to be true. There's something about us that wants this particular problem to rise to the level of something completely different. And so I've been talking for the past few weeks about something that I've been calling rampant individualism. Individualism, we live in a country that was founded on a declaration of independence. We live in a country whose entire frame of mind is that you are an individual and that you have individual rights. And some of your individual rights depend on you standing up for your individual rights. We live in a country where we love the rugged individual who goes off and blazes a trail, the, the Davy Crockett or, or anyone else that you might remember from your storied history books. You know, we, we love the stories of the person who blazes a trail where no one has gone before and did it by themselves, did it their way, did it in a way that no one else had ever imagined before, but just was that individual mindset. We love those stories. I think one of the reason we love the, one of the reasons we love those stories is that when the rugged individual in our world wins, we are reminded that there's a probability that we could win too. We think if a rugged individual can go out there and blaze his own trail, then that success is available to any individual. And we completely forget about all the other circumstances that surrounded that person's life to allow their individualism to become something great. But we focus on this individualism. And I made the claim a couple weeks ago, and I'll make it again today, that I believe that individualism is our biggest human problem. Individualism is simultaneously the thing that made America great and also our biggest human problem. Let me show you what I mean. There's this passage that I want to show you from 1 Samuel. It's not in 1 Peter, so it's going to be on the, on the lower third of the screen, or it'll be on this screen over here. But Samuel walks up to King Saul, and Saul has just done a sacrifice. And Samuel said, wait until I get there to do the sacrifice, but Saul doesn't wait. He does the sacrifice before Samuel gets there. While the sacrifice is still burning, Samuel shows up, and Samuel says to him, what have you done? He asked, Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time, blaming, you know, the prophet for not doing what he was supposed to do, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. Okay, so just framework here. When God told me this, In other words, don't do the sacrifice until Samuel the prophet shows up to do the sacrifice. When God said this, I then looked around me and I saw the world. I saw all of these problems. Keep going. He says, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. He's saying, what if all of this stuff is happening because I haven't sought the Lord's favor? So... I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. He's got a great excuse. He's got a great excuse. He says, all of this bad stuff is happening because I haven't taken action. All of this bad stuff is happening because I haven't done the thing that I could do. So I. 
So I was compelled to offer the burnt offering. You've done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Saul makes a number of mistakes in his life. But this mistake happens literally within just weeks of Saul becoming the king. And Samuel had said, don't do the sacrifice. But Saul says, even though God says this through the prophet Samuel, I have seen all of these other things, and so I. Adam and Eve in the garden, even though God said the tree will kill me, I see the tree is good, and so I. It's that little phrase, so I, that makes all the difference. God says, but so I. I'm going to ignore what God says and I'm just going to do my own thing. It's this individualism that says, I can make my own determination, I can make my own decisions, I can make my own value system that is our biggest human problem. Now, granted, a lot of great things have seemingly come out of an individualistic kind of life. We have all kinds of things in our country that are blessings as a result of someone stepping up and saying, I'm going to make this thing happen, or I'm going to drive this particular cause forward. And we perceive those people as the individuals we want to model. But the problem is the individualism that we believe is the thing underneath it. Luckily for us, there's a solution. The solution for us is simply this. God says you were chosen. The amazing thing about being chosen is that there's nothing I did. If my identity is based upon the fact that God did something, then no longer is my individualism anything to do with my identity. How I view myself is completely irrelevant because God chose me. Therefore, God chooses who I am. He chooses why I've been chosen. He chooses the values that he wants to raise up in me. And so my identity doesn't depend on my own sense of self. My identity depends on what he says about me. Secondly, my destiny doesn't depend on what I do. My destiny depends on what God says about me, why he chose me, what he chose me for. This concept that we have been chosen by God is actually the solution to our individualism problem. Now, listen, underneath the umbrella of we were chosen or we are chosen, there's still a lot of room for me to be an active agent in my life. There's still a lot of room for me to do things that God has called me to do, for me to take initiative where God gives me the freedom to take initiative. There's all kinds of places for my own agency underneath this umbrella. But what I can't do is say that my purpose is mine, my destiny is mine, my identity is mine. None of those things belong to me anymore. I've been chosen, and that makes all the difference. Over the last couple of weeks, 
we've been looking at a few different particular concepts underneath this big idea of we're chosen. And it all comes out of 1 Peter. Now, just to remind you, Peter was the apostle par excellence of individualism. Do you remember Peter? Everything Peter did was individualistic. Jesus says, I'm going to the cross and I'm going to be killed. Peter says, oh, no, you won't. <laughs> and Jesus says, shut up, Peter, if you know that were the way he would have said it. What he actually said is, Peter, you're acting like Satan. Get behind me. I like to view that's a very similar phrase to shut up, Peter. But you know, maybe that's a little bit more, more crass. He says, Peter, you're acting like Satan for crying out loud. Get behind me. Peter on the night Jesus was betrayed, pulls out a sword and swipes at a guy's ear because he thinks he's got to take matters into his own hands. Jesus, the son of God, the one who did all these miracles, he's not doing anything. So Peter says, so I have to do something. And he pulls out a sword. Jesus is walking on the water and Peter and all the other guys are freaked out, terrified. And Peter says, so I will do something. I'll ask Jesus if I can walk on the water too. Peter is the guy about individualism. But when Jesus rises from the dead and Peter realizes that his individualism got him nowhere, he surrenders. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. And Peter says, I will. I love you, Lord. Peter is the one who writes this little letter about the fact that we've been chosen, not determining our own destiny or our future. Here come some of the things that we've looked at so far. I'll just put them up on the screen. We were chosen by God, one, for his purposes. His first purpose is to display his holiness through us. So we were chosen by God to display his holiness. Then third of all, we were chosen by God so that he could make us a blessing. God chose me to make me a blessing in response to suffering. Now that phrase is important. God chose us to make us a blessing. Uh, I, I used that verse, that phrase last week. Remember, um, I, I talked about the genie coming out of a lamp and you're just really hungry and so you say, genie, make me a sandwich. And the genie says, poof, you're a sandwich, you know, and then, then you're... Well, with God, it's the same story. God chose us to make us a blessing. Twofold, he chose us so that he could make a blessing for us and he also chose us so he could make us into a blessing. But with God, it's not so simple as poof, you're a blessing. With God, the thing that happens between make me a blessing and you are a blessing is hardship. And the letter of 1 Peter says that it's hardship, it's suffering, it's this stuff that takes you through the pathway of becoming until you actually are a blessing. But let's just go a little deeper because 1 Peter 4 is actually the continuation of 1 Peter 3. Last week we looked at 3, and so I want to give you some details from 3 to set the stage for what we're doing the rest of our time today. Just a couple verses here. He says, first of all, do not repay anyone evil for evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. There are two things going on here in this verse. You are supposed to give a blessing even when you've received an insult, but you are also going to receive a blessing because this is how you've been called. This is what God called you to. The phrase we used last week is that God chose me to give a blessing and to receive a blessing in response to suffering. 
Even though I might experience hardship or frustration or suffering, and right now, coronavirus time, right now, racial unrest, right now, all sorts of issues. We are facing unrest in this country like I've never seen in my life. And all of us are going through some measure of suffering. But guess what? God chose us for this. He chose us to make us into a blessing so that we might give a blessing, but also so that we might receive one. But then take a look at this next verse from last week. It says this, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And I reminded you last week that the reason you can be a blessing and give a blessing and look forward to receiving a blessing is that God is paying attention to you. No matter what you're going through, God hasn't given up on you. God, I can do it. God is paying attention to me. I can do it because he's paying attention to me. But then beyond that, the last thing we mentioned last week was that it's also because Jesus is strong enough to make it happen. Take a look at this one last verse from last week. It says, For it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit, who has gone into heaven, or Jesus, it's talking about the who there is Jesus, not the spirit. I, I skipped a couple verses there. Jesus has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Jesus has suffered and been victorious over it. And now all authority is in submission to him. Okay, so that's our big review from the past couple of weeks and from last week. The reason we had to go through all that is because I need, need, need you to know that your suffering has a purpose, your hardship has a purpose, your frustration has a purpose, and you can trust that God's in the midst of it because God is watching you and Jesus is strong enough. So now, finally, let's go through verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Now, you think at the very beginning that we're going to get a long list of, okay, because Jesus suffered, now you suffer. And ordinarily, this might feel like a long list of all the things that I'm going to have to suffer through. But you need to know all of chapter 4 is based on Jesus' suffering, and it's not based on you mimicking his suffering. It's based on you experiencing the same blessings. All of chapter 4 is not about you trying to be hard enough, strong enough to actually survive. All of chapter 4 is about the blessings that God is going to give you. He's going to give you four blessings. Look at this, verse 2. He says, whoever suffers, end of verse 1, whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Verse 2, as a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Here's the first blessing. Freedom from sin. Have you ever thought to yourself, man, I just want to be free from all these temptations. I just want to free from the, be free from this particular issue. I want to be free from this particular problem of mine, this particular attitude. I want to be free from sin. Well, there's a simple recipe. All you have to do is suffer. He who suffers in his body is free from sin, Peter says. 
And so throughout history, people have gone through phases of trying to manufacture suffering for themselves. Uh, back in the Middle Ages, some monks would do a thing called self-flagellation. They would build little whips that were particularly designed for whipping yourself. And so they would beat themselves and they would try to get the pain flowing in their, in their lives so they could be free from the sin. And I just need to remind you, you should pay attention to what your Bible says. Because it's not the experience of suffering that eliminates sin. Did you notice that? It's the attitude in the midst of the suffering that eliminates sin. If you still have your finger in there, just look at that. It says, um, arm yourselves with the same attitude that Christ had. It's the attitude of the sufferer. Listen, I got some friends who are trying to get me to lift weights with them. Ah, That involves exercise. That involves things like pain. That involves things like working hard. And this is the problem. Suffering, we know, in general, brings positive results. And I don't know about you, but the COVID-15 has hit my waistline. And I, I know that I need to spend some more time doing some fitness work or weightlifting or something. And my friends are trying to get me to do it with them. And I just kind of don't want to do it. But here's the point. We know the point is true. If you have an attitude that is willing to endure hardship, then you've been liberated. You've been freed. Because if I'm willing to go through hardship, I'm not going to pursue comfort all the time. Sometimes sin is the more comfortable path. But if I'm willing to endure hardship, I'm free. Let's keep going, though. Verse 3. He says, For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. He says, you've had your fun. (laughs) You've spent enough time doing that. It's time to move on from it. Verse 4. He says, they, these other people, are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. So here you have decided that you want to live a better life. You had your fun before, but now you've decided you're trying to live a good life. You're trying to honor God, and you're experiencing the blessing of living a life of freedom from sin. But these other people can't understand it, and so they're blaming you. They're heaping abuse on you. Verse 5, but they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. In other words, those people are going to be judged. I could say blessing number two is that you're going to be judged less. Because you did your bad stuff, but now you're turning around, and now God is working on you, and God has forgiven you from that bad stuff, and he's working on you for this stuff now. And so your judgment is going to be of a different sort than these other people, and I could mention that. But verse 6 goes even deeper. Look at what verse 6 says. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. I'm going to pause here for just a moment because last week, if you were here, you remember, uh, last week we, we covered a really difficult passage. 
where it was Jesus preaching to the imprisoned spirits and we're asking questions of who are these imprisoned spirits and when did Jesus preach to them and, and what did he preach to them? And some people have the, the theory that Jesus, when he died on the cross, he then went down to hell and he proclaimed to all the imprisoned spirits in hell that he was now victorious over them. Some people believe that Jesus went down to hell and he preached a gospel to those people, giving them a second chance that they could get out of hell if they responded to the gospel. Some people believe that Jesus, after he rose from the dead, then he went into hell at some point in time and preached to them. And last week I covered all those options and I said the bottom line is we don't know. But when you read this verse in verse 6 and we find out that there are people that got the gospel preached to them even to those who are now dead, the question comes back up again. Is this talking about the same people who were imprisoned in chapter 3? And if you're paying attention, you might say, hey, listen, this is proof that it was the gospel that was preached back in chapter 3. And so some people have this idea that after you're dead, or at least the Old Testament people after they were dead, they got a second chance while they were in the, in the waiting place after death for the people who aren't in the fellowship of God that is sometimes called hell, but the Bible calls Hades. And they are then given a second chance with the gospel. There's just a couple problems with that. One is that nowhere in the Bible are we ever told that, that someone gets a second chance after entering the place of Hades. In fact, Jesus himself tells a story about a guy who goes to Hades and doesn't get a second chance, even though he has the opportunity here from Abraham himself. And so anyway, we can't really say that. And we're getting too in the weeds with this anyway. So I'm just going to share with you that this passage, unlike last week's passage, has a clue, a definitive clue that tells us exactly what's going on. Did you notice it? These people might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Perhaps you remember from last week a verse that said something happened to someone in regard to the body, but something else happened to that person in regard to the spirit. If you remember that, it's because we just looked at it a couple seconds ago, and I didn't point it out to you, but I'll show it to you again. This is from chapter 3, verse 18. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. The parallel is obvious, and it's very clear clear that there are some people who died in the body but are alive because of the spirit. Something in the physical world happened that they would be dead, but now they are alive because of something spiritual that had happened. So the gospel was preached to some people who now are dead in the body but are alive in the spirit. Let's just be abundantly clear. This passage is telling us about you. This passage is telling us not about some former person who's dead. This passage is telling us about you. You are a person who has heard the gospel. And you are a person who, even if you are dead in the body, will be alive in your spirit. Blessing number two is this. Eternal life with God. Eternal life with God. The problem with eternal life is that it involves physical death. What bigger example do you need of suffering leading to blessing? 
Jesus himself dies on the cross, suffering, leading to the blessing of our forgiveness and our eternal life. The entirety of scripture is based on this principle that suffering leads to blessing. You just need to know what the blessings are so that you can be ready to handle whatever the sufferings might be. And blessing number two is eternal life with God for those people who have heard the gospel and responded to it. But let's keep going. Verse seven, the end of all things is near. Some of you say, thank goodness. (laughs) Come back, Jesus. We're ready for you to come back. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. I know you look at this, And you say, hey, this is another list of things I'm supposed to do. If I have a particular gift, I'm supposed to use it. If I have a particular opportunity, I'm supposed to take advantage of it. This is another one of those individualistic kind of things that we're supposed to do, and it's just a list of obey these things, and sometimes I'm good at it, and sometimes I'm not. And if we view it as a struggle or a hardship, it will be a struggle or a hardship. But there's another way to view it. When I married into my wife's family, I basically needed to change my last name to Battle Day because her family was so strongly connected that I was being enfolded into their family much more than they were enfolded into mine. And one of the things that I have seen, and I've, I've mentioned this a number of times before, is that their family has a lot of unwritten rules that everybody does with joy. But one of the things that happens whenever we get together for a meal is that there are certain specific tasks that are assigned to certain specific people, and I don't think many of those tasks are verbalized in advance. It's just what we do. For example, when we get together for most of our holidays, Jen makes whipped cream. Largely that's because of me, because I can't stand Cool Whip. I think it's just absolutely nasty chemical fluff. And so uh, I was raised with actual, honest-to-goodness whipped cream, and uh, my wife has fallen in love with it, and the rest of the family has fallen in love with it. But for whatever reason, the rest of them think it's too difficult to make, and so Jen makes it. And so we're driving an hour and a half north, but she still makes the whipped cream at our house, and we drive it up there. And so that's one of the things that happens. She makes whipped cream. She also happens to make rolls because her bread is amazing. And she usually makes a pumpkin pie if it's that type of time of holiday that we're celebrating. And so whipped cream, pumpkin pie, bread rolls. Then uh, Jen's sister, Stacy, usually makes a cake and these little peanut butter chocolate balls. They're like peanut butter balls with, they're dipped in, oh, she calls them Buckeyes. And it's like, wow. And then, uh, then mom, mom battle day, she generally makes like the dinner, you know, so it's like there's a turkey and a ham and mashed potatoes and then there's, a, you know, casseroles and other things. And the appetizer, she makes a cheese ball that she's basically the only one who makes this cheese ball. And so then we all get together and sometimes when I'm feeling like I need to be responsible or someone asks me, I manage the meat. I'll carve the turkey or I'll grill the brats or whatever it is that they give me to do and other times I'm just watching the television. That's my contribution. But anyway, so we all get together and not a single person 
at least the ladies have never told me this, feels like it's a burden. I'll ask Jen about the bread or the, or the whipped cream or the pie, and she goes, oh, it's just so easy. And then Stacy comes, and she's so excited that she's got this stuff that she brought. And, and that's just the thing. Everyone comes with a gift, and we all love it, and we all celebrate, and we all are blessed by it. And it's just this amazing thing, and no one feels like it was an obligation Whatever we do, it doesn't feel like an obligation. It feels like a joy. Why? Because we're family. And this person knows that their gift is going to bless this person, and this person knows their gift is going to bless this person. And that's just what families do. The passage here isn't telling you that you've got a new job. The passage here is telling you you've got a new family. You've got a glorious, supportive family. And if you're in the midst of this kind of life, the blessing of God onto you, blessing number three, is a glorious, supportive family. Yes, it involves some hardship. Yes, it involves some putting up with people. Especially right now, we're in the weirdest possible circumstance when it comes to churches. For all of my life, the entirety of what church was about basically boiled down to this. I'm going to be really, you know, this is the kind of thing pastors say behind the scenes as a joke to each other, but we really sort of mean it, and we never really say it out in public, but I'm going to say a little bit of it out in public so that you can hear some of this. One of the things that church life has always been about is butts in the seats. That's one of the things that pastors always seem to talk about. Now, we don't actually say it that crassly unless we're trying to make a joke with each other, but how many people did you have in your church service last week? How many dollars came in? All these sorts of things. We have been in a mindset over the last year that is completely outside the realm of everything I've been grown into when it comes to the church. The only measurement we have right now is authentically whether or not you and I are living like Jesus. And that level of authentic measurement is something we're not used to. And so then we wonder, well, what does it mean to be the church when we don't do the things that churches do? Well, it means being a family that does the things families do. Phone calls. Small gatherings, a barbecue. That's what it means. You have a supportive family, whether you've been in a big group of people or not. And right now it feels weird because we're distant. But I just want you to know I still love you. I still see you as my family. And I've been trying to make connections. This last week I was in an outdoor park and we hung out with, I hung out with a couple of people. We're going to do a little barbecue thing this week. And Family. That's a blessing. It's not a responsibility. It's a blessing. Keep going because he makes it to verse 12 here. He says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. That's weird. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed 
you are blessed. For the spirit of, the, of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. There are two things that Peter says here that are weird, but he talks about glory twice. Did you see it? He talks about glory twice in this passage. He says, you go through suffering, but that does something to you. It makes you appreciate the future return of Jesus even more. The glorious return of Jesus. You are more eager, more excited about it, and when it happens, you will be even more just in awe of that moment, that future glory. But there's something else. The spirit of glory right now is on you. The spirit of glory right now is on you. That means blessing number four is a present and a future glory. Now, what I've been trying to share with you today is from Peter. He's just basically trying to say that there are four blessings that you experience when you recognize that you can go through suffering because God is paying attention to you because Jesus is strong enough. And so these four blessings come into your life when you are willing to encounter hardship without avoiding it. You're willing to go through places of difficulty. You're willing to experience the kind of thing that in the Christian life we sometimes view as hard or suffering. But there are four blessings that come from it. So now, I'm going to finish up our time by giving you four points of obedience. Four things that you and I need to do to make these blessings become real in our lives. Four things that come from these same verses that we just looked at. The first one comes from verse 12. We'll look at it a second time. He says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. First thing, don't be surprised by hardship. Christians in America are very prone to complaining when things don't go our way. When a church service doesn't happen the way we want it to, when something in our lives doesn't happen the way we want it to, we eagerly complain. We are very good at complaining. I did a whole sermon series a couple years back on how to complain better from the book of Habakkuk. It was so much fun. But we do so much complaining as people. We're really, really bad at it, and we think we're good at it. But here's our problem. In our world of outrage and frustration and anger and complaining about everything, I want to remind you, don't be surprised when you're bugged. Don't be surprised when things don't work out. Don't be surprised when you face hardship. Don't be surprised when something is difficult because, duh, that's normal for believers. Fiery ordeals. These people back in Peter's day were facing death. But Peter says, don't be surprised as if something strange were happening to you. Skip to verse 15. He says this, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal. And we are okay with that. If you suffer, it shouldn't be because you did something criminal. So don't do anything criminal. Avoid the criminal activity and then you can avoid the suffering. But did you see the last word? He says it shouldn't be as any of this criminal activity or even as a meddler. How many of us have caused our own hardship 
Peter says, don't be even a meddler because that can cause hardship that's outside of God's hardship. So here's your, last, your second piece of advice. Don't be the cause of your own hardship. Don't, don't be the cause of it. How many times have I gotten involved in a situation because I decided I was going to meddle in something? I decided I was going to stick my feet into some water where I shouldn't have been in. And this is such the problem for me. Because as a pastor, I feel the need to shepherd people, which means to teach them what God's Word says and to guide them in certain behaviors. And sometimes I see someone going down a path that really bothers me and I have to make a decision. Is my involvement in this teaching? Is it shepherding or is it meddling? Sometimes I'm good at it and sometimes I'm bad. And when I cross the line into meddling, I get myself into trouble. Sometimes I get myself into trouble in the other ways too. But, you know, meddling. As a dad, is it my responsibility to track my children's whereabouts, behavior, and all of that stuff when they're over 18? You know, is that meddling or is it being a good dad? All of us have this dilemma. I'm just trying to encourage you the way Peter is trying to encourage you. Listen, some of your problems are your own fault. Some of them, not all of them, but some of them are your own fault. Don't be surprised when you face real hardship, but also don't be the cause of your own hardship. But keep going, because there's a couple more things that he's suggesting for your life. Verse 17, he says, For it's time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Here's a part that we don't like a lot, but it's true. Our suffering might be God's judgment. Not punishment. I didn't say punishment. I said judgment. And that's different. If you go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, he uses a metaphor of a refining fire that can come into your life to test your faith. In verse 12, we just saw it. The hardship can come on you to test you. View your hardship. See your suffering as purification. Even if you caused it, it's still something that God is allowing in your life so it can purify you. See your suffering, see your hardship as purification. Even if someone else caused it, it's in your life because God is going to bring a blessing out of you and from you through it. It's purification. Every time we go through hardship, it's an opportunity for the bad stuff to get purified out of us. And it says right here that God does that judgment on his people now. The judgment on the rest of the world comes later. But the judgment on God's people is now. Purification. Last one, verse 19. So then, those who suffer according to God's will, and can we just acknowledge that sometimes suffering is God's will? Can we just acknowledge that sometimes God wants you to hurt? A good, good father sometimes knows that the other side of the suffering is worth the middle. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. I'll put it this way. Give it to God and keep doing good. Give it to God 
and keep doing good. He's my faithful creator, and so I'm going to trust him. There are all kinds of responses that we can have when it comes to difficult circumstances. Response one, we can ignore that it exists. Pretend that life doesn't have to deal with this. Response number two, we can look at the difficult circumstance and we can complain about it. And we can say, this shouldn't be in my life because I'm better than this or I deserve better than this. And so we complain about it. Or we can take option number three. And option number three is when we say, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to step out into individualism. I'm going to solve my own problems. I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to fight this battle. I am going to win this war. I'm going to do all these things just because I don't want to go through the suffering anymore and I'm going to get out of it. Some of us take the shortcut approach where our individualism is actually to just simply play into the comfort where we're going to live in the sin that this thing is supposed to purge from our lives but we just say, hey, I'm just going to go with it. So I've already eaten the whole chocolate cake. I'm going to make another one. That's kind of the idea. I'm just going to live with it. I'm just going to go into it and, and that'll just be it. But... For those who want to experience the full blessings of God, we adopt the attitude of Christ that says, I'm willing to go through suffering, and in the process, I will be a blessing, and I will trust God that in his timing, I will receive a blessing, because I was called to that. I was called to that. Maybe right now you've been feeling frustrated. Maybe right now this entire experience has just been really difficult for you. Maybe you feel like it's suffering. Maybe you feel like you're not exactly sure what's going on. But I just want to give you the encouragement. I can tell you, based on everything we see in Scripture, that a blessing is coming to you and a blessing is flowing through you. Right now, God is making you a blessing. He's making a blessing for you that'll come in his time, in his way, and it will be awesome. It might take the shape of one of these four blessings we've looked at today, or it might be something that surprises you. But I also know this. In the midst of this hard time, he is is making a blessing of you. He's making a blessing through you. This is the last Sunday in August. Next Sunday is... Gratitude Sunday. It's the first Sunday in September. It's the last Sunday in this series of messages. But we're going to embark next week on a month-long service project. And I'm going to ask you to seriously, seriously consider some way that you can be a blessing and to invest your entire month of September into little ways of you just being a blessing to other people. We're going to completely just lay our own issues aside We're going to stop complaining about our problems. We're going to stop complaining about the world around us. We're going to stop asking for everyone else to serve us, and we're going to start serving others. And we're going to look for tangible ways. We're going to do service Sundays on Sunday, whether in the neighborhood near our church or your own neighborhood, wherever you live. We're going to do service projects that you come up with. And so I'm asking you right now to start being creative. And we're going to try to find out different ways for all of us to just focus for a whole month on serving others because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. We are a blessing. We will receive a blessing. God is paying attention to us. Jesus is strong enough. And so let's do it. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. 
We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.